This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we're on question 73, Should We Be Reckless? And this episode, more so than usual, uh, is gonna be kinda loosey-goosey. It's relief day. I, uh... Just finished yesterday my 100-episode podcast story, Solve the World. It's been a three-year project, and uh, it's a relief to be done, though it was also, in some ways, like the honor of my life to get to be able to put so much effort into this thing um, and to actually have, you know, some people listening to it. But anyway, I am emotionally and physically, mentally still in recovery over that, so forgive me. Uh, if this is a really sucky episode. Um, on top of that, already trying to lower the expectations for the next few minutes for you, this question is pretty much just a pedestal for me to rant. I've been in a ranting mood for a while, and I gotta get the juice out of me, guys. I gotta get the rant juice out. So, this is gonna be it. We're gonna rant a little bit. I don't know how long I'm gonna rant for. Maybe I'll say my piece real quickly. Maybe not. But we're taking this rant on the premise of Jesus' words. Here we go. If I'm being honest, I think I have like six or seven big ideas in my life that I just keep like stumbling into and then self-realizing over. But the problem is I can only have like one or maybe two of these big ideas in my head at one time. And then the other four or five big ideas that I sometimes run into, I forget entirely about until I re-remember them or whatever. So the current big idea that I'm fully embracing now is apocalypse now. It's the idea that, yes, there's one big final apocalypse. The story's going to end for the Mother Earth eventually. But hidden in history and hidden in everyone's lives, there's personalized apocalypses and localized end of days. I love stories that embrace this idea. I love when I'm watching a movie or reading a book and it feels like everything is coming to this final peak or this final, um, what's the opposite of a peak? Inverted peak. Slough of despond. When you get to the end, there's always, it's human nature, I think, there's always so much desperation, and all of a sudden, all the important questions bubble up all at once, and they're not abstract anymore, they're very personal, and they're very mm, necessary, they necessitate answers. Thankfully, I've gotten to experience two pieces of media lately, just in the last couple weeks, that brought this front and center. The first one, surprisingly because I had really low expectations for it, was the People vs. O.J. Simpson, the first season of American Crime Story. This was made by the same guys who did American Horror Story, which I had really high expectations for, and then started watching it, and I have no good words in me for that. Nothing to say. I got nothing on that. I believe in the power of horror as a genre, much for the same ideas about the personalized apocalypse and the ideas of supernatural and the ideas of, well, that's a different topic. We're not talking about that right now. Stay on topic, Dante. Anyway, since this show came from people that I didn't trust, per se, showrunners that I didn't think have done a very good job in eliciting interest and themes that I find intriguing, I went into watching O.J. Simpson when it showed up on Netflix with low expectations. And then it was thrilling. It was phenomenal. Great show. 
uh, because it looks at the O.J. Simpson trial, slightly fictionalized, but from every possible perspective. So you feel for the prosecutors and you also feel for some of the defense attorneys and obviously the victims and you get the judge's perspective. It's this diamond um, reflecting all these different perspectives of this one event. And it firmly sets the O.J. Simpson trial right after the Rodney King riots in L.A. So we have this race war that's bubbling under the surface. And when you get into the trial, you feel like this wasn't just the trial of the century. This was the trial to end all trials. Everything about how we connect person to person, about interpersonal relationships and truth and justice and morality, it's all wrapped up right here. Whatever the judgment is in the O.J. Simpson trial, it's ending everything. <laughs> you get this sense and you feel so badly, especially for the prosecuting attorneys. They're putting everything in it and they just feel like, especially, obviously, spoiler alert, OJ gets off. Like, how, how can they even begin to form their lives after this? They know that this guy is guilty and they know that they pretty much proved it, right? They have all this evidence, more evidence than, you know, most convictions come off of, showing all the reasons why OJ should be convicted, but he gets off. So it's it's this perversion of righteousness and justice in their minds. So it's, how do you go on living in a world where the things you value, the things you thought everyone else valued, is completely thrown asunder? I love that, Russell. Likewise, I saw Logan, the Wolverine movie, and let's face it, X-Men films have not been very good. There's a whole slew of them. There's like 10 of them. And they came out before Spider-Man, before obviously all the Marvel movies. X-Men were like the early bird catching the worm as far as superhero movies go. Aside from Batman Superman, who have been around, you know, forever. But they've always treated themselves like Rocky 3 and 4, you know, where Rocky ceases to be a man and becomes this superhero figure who stands for more than just himself, but is this idol to look up to. The X-Men films, for the most part, have been about their sheen, their visual effects, you know, the cool tricks they can do. It hasn't been about grappling with real deep stuff, which is disappointing because I think the X-Men concept has pregnated within it a lot of potential to deal with relevant themes. And according to me, it just hasn't lived up to its potential. But here comes Logan. We see Wolverine. You know, Wolverine's superpower is, you know, he's got the, the bone claws that have been turned into adamantium claws, unbreakable metal claws that come out of his skin. But more importantly, he is an instant self-healer. His body regenerates. In this way, he's almost, essentially, immortal. You know, he's been shot in the head, he's had his heart ripped out. He survives all these things in all these films and, obviously, the comics. But Logan is set in the future when, for whatever reason, after being alive for hundreds of years, his superpower is starting to break down. He's finally aging. And beyond that, he's sick with guilt and shame and all the things that he's fought for and believed in along the ways. He's seen things go wrong so many times and so many of his loved ones have passed away or gone rogue or evil or whatever. You see this shell of a broken mutant hiding out in this world that also seems broken, fundamentally broken. And it's this deep movie where bad things just keep happening from every angle. Anytime you begin to hope more bad stuff happens, and it's violent, and it's dirty, and Logan's throwing out F-bombs left and right because that's what he would really do in real life. It's urgent, and it's dangerously, recklessly asking the question, can we afford to hope? Can we find any reason to hope in this landscape? 
It's the end of the world. In what can we dare hope in anymore? I love that. And maybe most of all, I love the localized apocalypse because of its immediacy. Everything has to be answered right now. We cannot afford to be passive because there isn't a tomorrow. There isn't a next moment. There's only this moment. So everything is reckoned with right now. Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now I wanted to read the one sentence that I'm concerned with right now in context of this greater soliloquy that Jesus is making to give you a little context and to also say, really, every single sentence that I just read, every verse, we could do an episode on. I know I say that often, but this time it's no hyperbole whatsoever. I half want to just go through this verse by verse and bring up my questions. But again, I think that'll derail us. But listener beware, right there. Every time Jesus opens his mouth, man, it is a riddle to a certain effect, isn't it? This isn't Paul talking. Paul would take one of these ideas and then go on for like three paragraphs. Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you're a hindrance for me. What shall we say then? Shall we stone Peter to death because he is Satan? By no means. For by grace, Peter has been saved through faith that not of himself. It is a gift of God. And though he acts a devil, an angel he shall become. Or something like that, you know? Jesus, or at least in condensed, gospelized, written form, Jesus is not an explainer so much as a descriptor. But here we go. In the middle of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is saying, look guys, I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. Doesn't say exactly how he describes that because you would think the disciples would have a little more know-how when those events actually unfurl, but apparently they don't. But then he adds to that this idea that he's going to die, that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. How do you parse that? What do you make of that? My rant is coming. I haven't gotten to it yet. My rant is against the gospel of self-preservation. I feel like this fake gospel of self-preservation has somehow borne itself deep into the roots of the Christian conservative American zeitgeist. It's borne itself in there and it's taking root and it's diseasing us. It's plaguing us. But before I get there, I want to link... Jesus' words here to what he also says in John 15. John chapter 15, 12 through 17. Jesus speaking here to his disciples. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Recall then, if you will, that God is love, so says John. 
So if God is love, and there's no greater love than to give your life for friends, then God's going to be the giver of his life for his friends, right? And of course, that's what Jesus does. But he goes on after making that bold statement. Verse 14, You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, of course, he's talking to his disciples, not in this case specifically to us, but I think those of us who are Christians at least want to be disciples of Christ, right? We want him to call us his friends. And he's saying here, if you're a true friend, you're going to give up your life for your other friends, in Christ's name, of course, for the purpose of the gospel, for the purpose of God's work, but you're going to give it up. Linking these two thoughts, no greater love than this, than he who gives his life for a friend, with whoever wants to save his life has to lose it, and yet somehow here in the 21st century, everything I see right now coming from the vast majority of conservative Christians here in America is, let's build walls, let's put up a defense. Let's legislate our morality into existence so we cocoon ourselves from the dangers of social impropriety. We have to stay the course. We have to stay the same. We can't be taxed. We can't give anything up. The union must be preserved. Like, where do we get off even calling ourselves in the same ballpark as the disciples? Yes, the disciples goofed up a few times, but they gave their life for their friends. When do we get to give our lives? I think, I think we have opportunities right now, but we refuse to do it. And I think the main cause of that is probably twofold. One is cowardice. And, and the second is what we fear most is death, is the first death. We act as if the gospel saves us from the first death. You know, we have the mantra, and it's a good one. Obviously, it's biblical. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Have we somehow forgotten what that means? Have we somehow perverted that to think that we're not going to die? Are we thinking that we're somehow avoiding the apocalypse? That somehow the localized apocalypse... The localized end of days, the personal trials of the century, the, the personal end of Wolverine superpowers life is not going to happen to us? Because it is. Death is coming for you, for me, and I know, I forget it all the time. It's only when I get, like, the flu, which is ridiculous, but I get, like, 102 fever and all of a sudden I panic about dying. <laughs> I'm somehow nearer the threshold there and I start freaking out existentially. But besides that, I think... Most of us living in the society we do with technology and Medicare and all these things, we somehow think we can preserve ourselves from death, that maybe our forefathers, they were the ones that had to sacrifice. But nowadays, we're just going to keep on living forever. So if we buy a house, make sure our children go to the right schools, spay and neuter our pets, that we're not going to have to face the indignity of dying, of peeing and pooping and farting while our heart gives in. I've watched enough football in my days that when you play defense, when you try to preserve your lead, it never works out, right? You have to continually play offense. 
You have to keep thinking to yourself, this might be my last moment. God may take this all away from me today. Because as soon as we start worshiping at the idol preservation and thinking, I can maintain what I have. I can keep this right here. I can keep it close. Then we're worshiping self. We're saying, I can do it my own. Or the stars have aligned and history has worked up to this moment to somehow prioritize me and my family. And now what I'm about to say is super arrogant since I do not have children. But I think another aspect to this is we'll say, yes, I would be reckless. I would do crazy cool things for the Lord. But I have a wife. I have a dog. I have children. I have to make sure they're cared for. I have to make sure they live a good life and everything's cared for them. How many children are being raised in these self-preservationist societies not knowing what the gospel looks like because their parents sold out for self-preservation? I recently heard a member at my church talking about politics, talking about why he was voting for Trump, and he said, at least with Trump, we get a seat at the table. A seat at the table? What does that even mean? As if Trump is king or anyone in this world is king, that we would get self-preservation that way? That we would get to maintain the things that we want? We don't get to maintain everything because we don't have anything. Everything we have has been given to us. So, uh, so I don't want to blend politics and theology too much here. And I'm not saying go be a communist. But how many decisions do we make on a day-to-day -day basis that's talking us into providing continual welfare for ourselves. There's a great episode of Band of Brothers, and of course, war movies are quintessential personal holocausts. If you're in the center of the Battle of Stalingrad, the world's ending, brother, and you're right there, you got a front row seat for that sucker. But in this one episode, I remember there's an officer in the American army that all the others are, like, in awe of, because somehow he manages feet after feet after incredible feet on the battlefield. And there's this one particular soldier who's struggling with fear, and one night in his foxhole, this officer ends up sharing a foxhole with him, and he says, you know what the trick is? You have to believe, truly, that you're already dead. You have to convince yourself you're not getting out of here alive. And then, only then, can you do the impossible because you're free of the burden of trying to save yourself. Stop trying to save yourself. You can't do it. You won't do it. Maybe for 10 years, maybe for 20 years, maybe, hell, for another 100 years. But the Reaper's going to get you. And he's not going to take you swiftly. He's not going to take you easily. You're going to come out of the sausage maker just as brutalized, just as scandalized, just as raped of your innocence as the refugee that's drowning in the Mediterranean Sea tonight. I have righteous indignation at the state of the Christian church right now in America. I know, I, this is, I, I am no one to trumpet any cause of righteous indignation, but yet I still have it. I still have to rant because Jesus' words say, you have to lose your life. Dante, where am I losing my life? I'm not. I'm not being reckless with my life. This question's easy, people. This question, I usually try to make these questions open-ended and unanswered. This one's a slam dunk. Should we be reckless? Yes. Yes, we should. Not because we need to act dumb, but because there's no way to act but recklessly. The only way to gain ground is to be bold. And here's the thing. Being bold is being reckless. Should we be reckless? Yes. Dante, how are you being reckless? I don't know. That's the real question. I don't know how to be reckless. 
You ask me right now, I should maybe sell all my stuff, give it to the poor. Maybe I should become a street evangelist. Be one of those dudes with a sign around my neck saying the end is nigh. I don't know. I'm maybe just trying to start with a mindset. A mindset that today might be my last day. What am I doing today? This is not about earning salvation. I'm not trying to earn my way into heaven's gates. I'm simply trying to look at my friends around me and say, why am I, why am I not dying here? Why don't I have greater love within me? Greater love has no one than this, that a man should give his life. Give his life! That's what I have to give. Why aren't I doing it? Why aren't we doing it? This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.